All right. Uh, well, we're starting a new message series this morning as we launch into the new year. We've, we've had a couple of weeks. I recognize we're already on the 15th, but we spent January 1st looking back at 2022. And then we spent January 8th kind of looking forward at where we think God is leading us as a church uh, for this coming year. And so now we're, we're into this, well, well, now what? And so we're launching into a new series. And for the next four weeks, we'll, we'll be looking at a passage that I suspect uh, if you've been around at Trinity for any number of time, you're familiar with this passage. In fact, we used the bulk of it as our benediction for the entirety of last year. And so I wanted us to, uh, to, to not just maybe uh, put that passage on the shelf and kind of get on with, with it, but, but rather we wanted to dig into these, these verses, this prayer of Paul. Uh, it's, it's a passage that is rich with hope. It's, it's, it's a prayer that points us towards spiritual growth and towards our spiritual flourishing even. And it's only a handful of verses long, but, but it inspires us to, to lean in and to allow God to transform us and allow Him to, to work in our lives and, and the lives of those around us to the extent of, of, of beyond anything we ever might even ask or imagine. And so we're going to lean in. So if you have a Bible... I'll invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 3 with me, and that's where we're going to be camping for the next little bit. Well, in the 2013 blockbuster movie Gravity, which is now 10 years ago, not 9 years ago, uh, two astronauts were played by Sandra Bullock and, and George Clooney, and they were on a routine space mission that suddenly turned not so routine when they struck some space debris, and then all of a sudden the movie shifted from this 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 mission they had to survival and trying to get home. And eventually, uh, Sandra Bullock's character, Ryan Stone, gets to the point where she's convinced she's going to die in space, and she starts to prepare herself for death. And as she does that, she says this. She says, I'm going to die. Not everyone dies, but I'm going to die today. And no one will mourn for me. And no one will pray for my soul. And I've never prayed, and nobody ever taught me how. Re really, just some, some haunting words, I think, right? But probably ones that are maybe familiar with, to many people around us. Something that, that I've noticed in our, our culture the last little while, maybe especially, but there, there's a lot of fear. We, we do a lot of things out of fear or driven by fear, maybe especially a fear of dying. Maybe that's because uh, we want to be in control of everything and, and death seems to be out of control or out of our control. We live in a lot of fear. And, and, and it was interesting as well when we stepped into the COVID pandemic some time ago, one of the things that shot up the Google rankings was, how do I pray? It was interesting to watch as well. You know, A couple of weeks ago, if you track with sports, there was kind of that not that violent a collision, but the, the young man collapsed on the field and had CPR or had chest compressions for nine minutes. And what was the immediate response of the players at that game and then in games to follow? They knelt down and prayed. And when, when crisis hits, when things get out of control, it's remarkable how our base instinct turns to something outside of ourselves and to prayer. And so I trust that this series will help us to learn how to pray so that we don't have to say with 
this Ryan Stone. Nobody ever taught me how to pray. And I trust that it will also uh, point us towards God's working in us and God's hope for our future so that we don't fear death. We don't want to um, hasten it or rush into it, but we don't want to fear it either. This prayer is a, is a great example for us on how to pray with, with our focus on God's greatness and our need. And so let me read the opening part as we learn from God how to pray for the Lord's power. Ephesians 3, I'm picking it up at verse 14, where Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every, fa- every family in heaven and on earth is named. He starts out by saying, for, for this reason I kneel. Well, what reason is he kneeling down for? And again, the, the, part of the problem with parachuting into the middle of a letter is we, we're jumping in the middle of a conversation. Paul is about halfway through the book of Ephesians here, and and he has again and again told this church that he's writing the letter to, who he loves dearly, all the stories of the goodness of God. He's reminded them again and again that God is for them, that God has worked in them, that God has transformed them and continues to transform them. He's repeatedly proclaimed the gospel to them. He's repeatedly declared the promises of God towards his people and reminded those people, that church, and us today who read it, who they are because of what Jesus has done. Here's a probably not a complete list of what Paul has described and, and kind of uh, taught this church in these first two chapters. First, he says to them in chapter 1, verse 4, you guys are a chosen people. Don't, don't forget, you're not just floating around trying to do your own thing, but you've been chosen by God. How does that change how we view the world and ourselves? In verse 5, he says, uh, you've been adopted as well. You've You've been brought into the family of the king and given the king's family name. That's a massive deal. He said, you've been redeemed. Your, 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 the, the debts that you had, your sin debt has been paid for. You've been forgiven in verse 7. You've been shown the mysteries of Christ. And even though they're too great to understand, we, we, we understand at least a piece of them that God sent his son because he loved us so much. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says that we've been given an inheritance. You don't get an inheritance if you're not part of the family, right? There's more family language here, adoption language here. This is something that has been given. And then just in case we're not sure if we stick with this family, we're reminded in verse 13 that we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That God's promises are good. His word is true. Into chapter 2, Paul says, you were once dead, but you've been brought to life. You were spiritually dead, but brought to life. You were once children under wrath. Your your actions have, have, have put you at enmity with God. God was your enemy because you were sin, sinful and he is holy and you cannot be together because of that. But by the work of Jesus, you've been saved by grace through your faith in him. And in verse 2 as well, it says you are God's workmanship. You are God's masterpiece. Has anyone, you don't have to raise your hand, but maybe you want to. Has anybody ever felt like I'm not enough? I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. There's a mistake. There must have been a mistake when God maybe because I can't do this thing or I want to do it or whatever else. If we grasp just some little piece of verse 10 that, no, 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 you're not broken. You are God's workmanship. No, no, you're not a disaster. You might have stuff you need to deal with in your life, but you are his masterpiece. What, what are the words in our head that change as we speak to ourselves. 
How, do, how does our heart feel if we picture ourselves as masterpiece instead of broken? He goes on in verse 13 and says, Once you were far, but now you've been brought near. You are once foreigners and strangers, and now you are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. And as he continues to work in you, you are being built into a new temple, the dwelling place of God. And that is a tremendous list. And that's who we are as we follow Jesus. Every single one of those things is true of us, whether we believe it or accept it or not. And Paul, writing this letter to the church that he loves, that he, he, I'm sure, longs to be with in person instead of having to write a letter and send it with someone. He hopes they get there. He hopes the letter gets there. It doesn't get destroyed on the way. And he just has this heart for this church. And as he thinks about all the things God has done for him and for them, his only response is, so I fall to my knees before the Father. God has done so much. He's been so good. He has done all the work to show us that he loves us and to adopt us into his family. And the right way to respond is to fall to our knees in worship. And that's what Paul does here. He offers up this posture of, of, of kneeling. And I don't know if he actually knelt while he was writing or dictating this letter, however he made it happen, but, but actually... Uh, kneeling in the presence of other people, though it's maybe um, somewhat common in some church circles today, it definitely was not common in Jewish culture, in an honor and shame type culture, then or even now. And so for Paul to, to humble himself and say, I, I'm, I'm going to kneel in this place because of all that God has done, it, it is a, an expression of his deep emotion for what he's, he's been writing and, and feeling and what God has done, but also a deep humility before God. There aren't too many examples in the Bible of people kneeling in that humility because it is it was such a big thing. Here, here are a couple of kind of major events where, where the text tells us that somebody knelt. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, uh, King Solomon dedicated the temple. This was a, a long-awaited, long construction project. We think our construction project is taking a long time. This one's even longer. David wanted to build the temple, right? But God said, no, you've got blood on your hands. Uh, your son will build it. So they had to wait a generation. And then Solomon built it. And finally, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon has this platform. And he gets on it in the middle of a court. And he stood on it. And the king, the most powerful person in the land, knelt down in humility in front of the people and raised his hands, spread his hands towards heaven. This is a deeply emotional moment, a deeply uh, humbling moment for him to worship that way. In Mark 14, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we read that, that as he went a little further into the garden, he fell down to the ground and to pray. Deeply emotional moment. Acts chapter 20, Paul is, is with the elders at this church they wrote the letter to, with the elders and the, the people in the church in Ephesus, and he's told them, this is going to be the last time we see each other. I know God has shown me. I've got this journey ahead of me. It's not going to end well from a human perspective for me, but, so this will be the last time we're together. And we read in Acts 20 that he knelt down and he prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. 
and they embraced Paul and they kissed him and they grieved most over the statement that they wouldn't see his face again and then they sent him on his way. A deeply emotional moment, deeply humbling moment. So we see this sort of, call it an, an unusual passion that Paul is emphasizing when he says, no, I kneel down before the Father to this. And again, whether or not it was a, a, a physical posture is not quite as relevant, but it was absolutely a heart posture. Again and again, and this, this, this content isn't, isn't new to Paul. This isn't the first time he's understanding these details that, that of who we are chosen and adopted and, and that we were saved by grace and all these things. He's spent years with this church, years at other, months and years at other churches, and now he's just kind of writing this summary letter. And, and again, it brings him to the point of falling to his knees. It might not be a bad idea for us as well to adopt this posture of, of kneeling, whether it's physically or, or just emotionally, to think, man, God, you've done so much again and again and I keep running but you keep coming and I sin again but you forgive again and I, I do this but, but you've redeemed me you've drawn me and you've adopted me there's nothing good in me apart from you and all these things but God you're so good and just to pause and kneel maybe physically maybe uh, emotionally maybe spiritually or, or, or just the posture of our hearts and just sit in that we can learn some things from, from Paul's humble posture and apply it to our lives even from these first couple of verses we'll see that that, that paul prays with with a humble gratitude a, a humble desperation but also a humble confidence first he he starts with this humble gratitude and again he's he's just finished writing to this church what we would call chapters one and two and and then got a little bit distracted at the beginning of chapter three and now he's back writing this prayer and and again he he is again stunned by god's amazing grace both uh, to him individually and to individuals in the church but to them as the church family as well one commentator says this tony marita he's a, a pastor and author and commentator in the states he says when we reflect on god's amazing grace it should lead us to get on our faces before God, who has called us, adopted us, redeemed us, and forgiven us. Christ died on our behalf, and the Spirit has sealed us. God has brought us from death to life, and He raised us with Christ, and has seated us with Christ. God has made us a part of His church. And in light of these realities, Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, and so should we. He would go on to say and remind us that, that prayer is not striking a pinata and, and hoping that the goodies fall out. But prayer is a form of worship. And that's what we see Paul doing here, worshiping God for all the things he's done. He hasn't asked for anything yet, but he's just so moved as he thinks about and, and is reminded about how God has been so good. In Psalm 95, the psalmist writes, Come, let us worship, let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture. He is good, He has called us, He has brought us to this. Maybe we too need to, to take a knee more often. To in our times, whether it's, uh, you're welcome of course here, to, to take a knee as we pray or as we worship, to ad ad adjust your posture, Maybe it's in our prayer times at home to, to rather than, I don't know, my, my uh, most common um, posture, I guess, I get up in the morning, I head down, I make myself a cup of coffee. 
sit on the chair, pop my feet up, and just invite the Lord to be with me for some time. Sometimes I'm distracted by a million things going on. Other times just try to sit in silence. But maybe instead of sitting comfortably, I need to put down the feet, get on the floor, and just put my face on the ground before him and just, just kneel there to physically alter our posture as we try to live out physically that emotional, man, I just want to kneel before the Father and thank him for all that he's done. So we approach the Lord with a humble gratitude, but we also, Paul teaches us, that we approach with a humble desperation as well. Uh, kneeling is, is also a sign of desperation. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how some of these songs, and we'll get an opportunity following the message to, to practice this, because we need to practice. Some of our songs say, I raise my hands, right? And we're like, yeah, I raise my hands, or I raise my hands, or I raise my hands in worship. Sometimes, and we, so we, we said we have permission to raise our hands because we usually do that when we celebrate or we surrender, right? Those are kind of the two ways in culture that we, or the reasons that we would raise our hands. Well, I think, what else do we do when we surrender, right? We kneel. So, so kneeling, as Paul said, I, as I kneel before the Father, it's a sign of desperation. It's a sign of coming to the end of oneself. Saying, God, I, I've, I've tried my hardest. You've watched me fail at this. I need you. And so again, we continue to learn about Paul, the, the pastor in these verses too. Is his heart is for this church. He spent you know, around three years with them, planting the church, raising up leaders, organizing them to, to continue to reach their city, uh, calling out sin in their lives and calling out the goodness in their lives as well. He, he wept when we left them, as we read a little bit earlier. And so he knows they need something to keep going on. And they, they need something that can only come from God, and that is God's power. If we looked ahead into verse 16, he says that, I pray that he may grant you this power. God knows that, that for God to, or Paul knows that for God to keep working in our lives, it's a gift. He gives us his power as a gift. And in desperation, Paul prays for God to answer that prayer. So the next, the next question, do we, my first one was kind of, uh, do you kneel before the Father when you pray? Either physically or kind of, you know, you take that posture in your mind. <clears throat> The second one is, is, is do we come before God with a, with a sense of, of humble desperation? Recognizing that you know, we're asking God maybe for, for really good things, but maybe not with that same desperation that Paul's asking for. I was thinking about that as I read my notes again this morning. I like to do that when I get up early and put up my feet with a cup of coffee. I also go through sermon notes Sunday morning. And I looked back, looked back at my week my prayer times in the week and wondered, did I ever pray with, with a desperation? And I, I mean, I've got some things on my prayer list. I know you've got some things on your prayer list. Big ask. I'm sure I can ask for bigger things. But there's some, some big ask. There's people I'm praying for. There's, there's like I'm asking, as we've said, our mission statement is to see people transform from not knowing Jesus to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. There's people on that list for me, as there are for you. But do I pray desperately? Gosh, maybe not. Just kind of make the ask and, okay, God, it's in your hands, but do we come before God with that same amount of desperation, recognizing that if God doesn't move, if God doesn't put his power into the situation, nothing's going to happen. 
do we realize without God we are helpless and powerless? I hope I'm learning that again in this passage. Maybe this illustration will help. I, I think I might have used that one before, but it was quite a while ago. It comes from a story called Palm Monday, as opposed to Palm Sunday. And you recall on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode what into Jerusalem? A donkey. And as they entered the town, people were cheering and celebrating and putting coats on the road and palm branches on the road, all the things, right? Palm Sunday. So you've got that in your mind. Well, this little illustration comes from the perspective of the donkey. It's been a while since I've used a donkey illustration in church, but here we go. The donkey awakened. His mind was still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. It's Palm Monday now, right? The day after Palm Sunday. Never before had he felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. And so he walked back into town and he found a group of people by the well and he said, I'll show myself to them. But they didn't even notice him. They just went on drawing their water and and paid no mind to him at all. Throw down your garments, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Someone finally slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. You're getting in the way. And donkey mutters to himself, these miserable heathens. I'll just go to the market. That's where the good people are. They'll remember me. But the same thing happened. Went to the market and no one paid attention as the donkey strutted down Main Street and right in front of the marketplace. The palm branches! Where are the palm branches? He shouted. Yesterday you threw palm branches! Finally, hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother. Foolish child, she said gently. Don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? Now the analogy may break down in some way, but we need to recognize that without him, we too are just ordinary donkeys sometimes. Jesus told us this. This isn't anything new. In John 15, he said to his disciples, I'm the vine, I'm the vine you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because without me you can do nothing. Without Jesus, we can't do a thing. This should should humble us. It should make us desperate, but not in a like like negative, depressing way. But it should encourage us because we've sung, and Paul has written earlier. That because of Jesus' work, we can boldly approach the throne of God. That we, in our desperation, as ordinary donkeys, get to walk into the kingdom, the, the king's throne room, and say, Jesus, I need your help. Without you, this is not going to happen. And I may look like a donkey, but with you, great things can happen. So we can approach our prayer life, we can approach the king with humble gratitude, with humble desperation. And finally, because the the work that Jesus has done in our life, we can approach with a humble confidence as well, to boldly approach that throne. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 18, it says, For through him, through Jesus, we have access to the Father. A couple verses earlier than where we are right now, it says, In him we have boldness and confident access to him. Because of Jesus, we, we, we can confidently bring our requests to God. Jesus promised that this would be the case as well. In John 16, 26 and 27, he said, On that day, there will be a day coming, and in that day, uh, you'll ask in my name. 
And I won't, I won't have to ask the Father on your behalf. You can go straight to the Father because the Father loves you and you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. Our faith in Jesus grants us the key to the throne room. Now God, the Father, is a good Father who loves his kids. And I know, and I know, that for many of us in the room trying to take that picture of Father that we might have from our earthly lives and putting it on God doesn't always give us the picture of a good Father who wants good gifts, to give good gifts. Many of us have, have, we'll say, complicated relationships with our earthly Father, though I don't want that for any of us. But God is, as Paul wrote earlier in the letter, the glorious Father. And in verse, a little bit later in the letter, he'll say he is the Father of all who loves his kids, who wants to lavish grace and mercy on them. He is the good Father, and he is rich and powerful, and his resources never run out. So let us confidently bring our prayers to him. So just like Paul, we can fall to our knees in prayer with humble gratitude, thanking him for all that he's done, with a humble desperation, recognizing that apart from Jesus, we are powerless, and with a humble confidence, knowing that Jesus' work is good, and his promises are true, and so we can approach the throne of God. But Paul continues in verse 13 and 14. He says, I, I, this is the reason, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every, every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, Again, if you've been around for a little while, you've, I know you've heard me say there are no wasted words in the Bible. If it's your first time tuning in or being with us, let me tell you, there are no wasted words in the Bible. If it's there, there's a reason it's there, and we should pay attention to it. So just super, really quickly, notice that Paul says God has named every family in heaven and on earth. God has given them a name. God has given you a name. In the, in the ancient world, your, your name wasn't just how to differentiate you from the person that lived next door. Oh, Bob lives here, Jim lives there. But rather, it was a part about uh, telling who you were. It, it, it revealed something internal ab either about you or who people were praying for you to be. Uh, one day, I, I'd encourage you to take a look through the Bible at some of the meanings of the names, especially the ones that God changed. Uh, Two examples we'll look at. First, uh, Abraham was, sorry, Abram. His name meant the exalted father. He had no kids at the time, but his name meant the exalted father. And God changed his name. I've already given you the punchline to Abraham, which means father of many. Again, that promise hadn't come true yet. He was still childless, but God said, no, 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 no. I've got something for you. I want to give you this identity by changing your name. Uh, Jacob, when we read that Jacob and Esau were born, or we read that Jacob came out grasping his brother's heel, and he was given that name, which meant the one who grasps the heel, or, or it can mean um, the deceiver. What, sorry? Supplanter. But after some time, he gets his name changed, right? What does his name mean? What is, sorry, what does his name get changed to? Jacob becomes... Israel, which means the one who has wrestled with God, who's been with God. That's, that's a big change, right? Paul says that, that God 
has given us a name. He knows us. He's played a role in our existence. We're not here by fluke or mistake. He's given us a name. He's called us to something. He has has the authority and, and dominion over us to lead us and guide us. And he knows what's best for us and wants to take us there. And he has given every one of us an appropriate role to play. The psalmist writes in, in Psalm 147 that he counts the numbers of the stars and he gives names, gives names to them all. And if God does that with the heavens, and he does that with us too, then that's, that's something. In Isaiah chapter 40, the prophet writes, Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number and he calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, none of them is missing. The God who can name every star in the universe, and once you get up the road here into the dark, you can see there are billions and billions of stars, and God knows every single one of them, but he also knows every one of our names. He also knows every, his number, the hairs on our head. Here's the thing. In all of our worry and anxiety of what the new year might bring, in all of our fears of, of death or our wonderings of how do we pray, what do we do with these things, we have a good Father who knows us. We have a Father who sees us. Have you ever felt invisible? Walked into a place and just felt like nobody sees me, nobody knows me, they're all there, I'm over here. God sees you, and God knows you by name. Let me uh, leave you with a couple of questions. There will be, in in just a minute, there will be a little respond graphic that pops up here. If you're looking at the chairs in front of you, you see a QR code that's on your left, I think, that says respond. All that, that, that's a little link to our website. You can type it into trinitycanmore.com slash respond. It's just a little form that's there in a sense for accountability. Week week after week, we gather together, we hear from the Lord, and and if I don't like jot down a note of, man, I should I should apply this to my life, sometimes it's gone before I get home. And I mean, I, I'm the one preaching most weeks, right? So you can pop up that little link, send, I think God's saying this to me. It comes to me. It's not going to be posted on our Facebook page or Instagram. It's not public. It's, it comes to me. And so maybe one of these questions might steer how you respond to the message. The first is this. Are you confident in God's goodness towards you? Are you confident that God is a good God? Why or why not? I know that I, I wrestle with that from time to time, and I think, that, I think that's okay to wrestle with these questions. You don't have to have them all figured out every day. Second question is, if we're thinking about our level of confidence, how can we become more confident in the goodness of God, but also in the plans that God has for us? I invite you to to think about that week. We'll maybe post those questions online as well. And then you can uh, scan that little link on on the respond graphic there and let me know. And the last question I do want to ask, just simply this, how... How can I pray for you? It is, it is my my great honor and joy to have have a list in my Bible app. I use the U Version app. This is one of my favorite Bible apps, and to go through and to pray for you. And uh, I would love to know how I can be specifically and, and diligently, hopefully with 
gratitude and desperation and confidence praying for you. And the same thing, there's a little code there, there's a website there, you submit your prayer requests and, and it comes to me as well. Well, as we head into the, the new year and all it will bring, I, I hope and I pray that as we dig into this prayer and even the, these kind of introductory words to this prayer that, that we will learn to base all our hope and all our trust on God. We know that we will come to know and, and grow in our knowledge that he will do more and above and beyond anything that we could ever imagine. Let me pray for us and we'll have a closing song. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring Paul to write this letter. And I pray that you would um, have the, these words also kind of stick in our minds this week as we consider how we approach you and how we approach our prayer life. If, if, we, uh, if we aren't prayers, Jesus, help us to pray. Uh, remind us that, that, that the prayer is, is just conversation with you. It can be asking questions. It can be waiting and listening. It doesn't have to be in the right words, in the right language to get your attention. It can be as simple as, Jesus, I don't know if you're real. But the guy at Trinity said you might be, so here I am. Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to grow in our, our, our humble gratitude for all that you have done for us. Maybe, maybe that's what you have for us this week, is to just read over and over again Ephesians 1 and 2 and just sit and soak in those words. Help us to pray with, with a humble um, desperation to know that, God, I can, I can try and I can put in work and I need to, to do my part, but God, without you, if you don't show up, Help us to pray with a humble desperation. But let us also, Jesus, pray with, with a humble confidence. Remind us that we can boldly approach your throne. Remind us that, that you've said, when we have faith in you, we have access to the throne room, to the King, to our good, good Father, who, as we sung, for all our life has been faithful. In the times that we've noticed it, the times that we've seen it, and the times that we haven't, God, you are good. You are faithful and your promises are true. Jesus, thank you for your work on the cross, for your death that brings life to us, that gives us this ability, gives us this privilege to boldly approach the throne of our Creator. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you come?